This morning I want to talk to you about remaining faithful unto death. Remaining faithful unto death. As um, we continue our study through the book of Revelation here this morning, I want to go back and remind you very quickly of just a few goals that we're going to look for, especially in this particular part. We gathered all of our goals from chapter 1, and they're all laid out pretty easy to, to grab. And so every time we study, we want to try to study in light of at least one or more of these goals because everything in this book was written toward these purposes. And so we want to make sure that we're looking for that. The first goal was to reveal Jesus Christ sometimes in a way not yet seen. And in this case, to reveal Jesus as the way we need to see Him. Maybe we have seen Him this way before, but we need a fresh view of it again. We need to see Him again in this way. And so we're going to see that He does that in each one of these churches so um, that's the first goal. The second goal was to show Christians things that must take place so that we can be prepared to battle. To show Christians things that must take place. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, those are the exact words. If you've got your Bible, you could turn back and read it yourself. To show Christians the things that must take place. And the whole purpose for that is so that you can prepare so that you can know ahead of time what to look for. And so that's the second goal. The third goal was to bring blessing to the one who keeps this Word. In other words, He's going to give you instruction in this. And if you hear this instruction and you keep this instruction, then a blessing will come your way. And that blessing being godly strength, that blessing being um, that you will prosper in all of God's ways that He leads you in. So no matter what He commands you to do, He'll give you the strength to be able to do it. And so that's the third goal in this. The fourth goal that we see, at least in this this morning, is to cause the church to persevere. He wrote this book of Revelation so that when you read it, that you will keep on keeping on. Do you have any idea, some of you do, Most of you can't imagine the people that we have seen start this thing and quit. Most of you can't imagine the people that we have knelt in this altar with and prayed with and we've served with and we've taught Sunday schools with and we have ministered out in the communities with and people that we have went to foreign fields with and yet they quit. And the purpose of Revelation, Jesus said, is so that the church will persevere. So that they will keep on keeping on. And so I pray that that's what will happen to you as we go through it this morning. You'll remember that Jesus showed us in chapter 1 that He's walking among the churches. That He's, he's with us. That He hasn't left us. That He's not some distant person that, that has no idea what's going on in Wells Baptist Church. No, he told us in Revelations that He's walking among the churches. That whether you see Him or not, He's here right now. And He knows everything about everybody, everything about every ministry, and there is nothing hidden from His sight right now. And so this is something that we need to keep in mind. And this first church He comes to, He wants them to understand and He wants them to see that 
He is the first. He is before all things. In other words, there was, there was nothing before Him. That's the reason why His name is called the Great I Am. Whenever Moses came to God and said, What do I tell them that your name is? And God said to him, You tell them, I am. In other words, I always have been and I always will be. I am the creator of time. I am not limited by time. Time has this existence in me. I am the first and I am the last. I am the one who died and I am the one who came to life. And you're going to see why these characteristics are very important for them to be able to see. Revelation chapter 2 verse 8, we'll take off right there. This letter, as we spoke last week of the book of Ephesus, this letter is to the messenger or the angel. And I explained that last week. This very likely means the, the one who is going to present this letter to the church. He's saying, I'm writing it to you, Nick King, if you're the one that is going to present this to Wells Baptist Church. I'm writing it to you, Kevin Wells, if, this, if you're the one that's going to present this to the church. And so this letter is to the messenger of the church in Smyrna. And so that's important to keep in mind. This is who it's to. It's to the one that's going to present it to the whole church in Smyrna. Also, these are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the words of the first and the last. This is the way Jesus described Himself in chapter 1. Jesus gave John this revelation of Him, and you're going to see that when John saw this revelation that he was the first and he was the last, he's the one that died and came to life, all of these qualities of Jesus are laid out as Jesus introduces Himself to each of these individual churches. And I believe the reason He does that is because He gives each church the vision of Himself that they need to see at that given time. Because let's just be honest. What we need to keep on in our faith is not a vision of the world. It's not a vision of, uh, of blessing in this life. It's not a vision of, of better health in this life. It's not a vision of just understanding the Word of God. What we need is to see Jesus. And if we can see Him for who He is, then we'll persevere in our faith. And so that's what we see here. Just to go through a few of them, you'll notice in uh, Ephesus in chapter 2 verse 1, if you got your Bible, I didn't give these scriptures to the people up there, but these were the words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. In other words, they were the ones that needed to see that He was with them, that He knows everything about them, that He can see that even though they're doing all these good works, everybody else in the world would have looked at Ephesus and said, man, that is an awesome church. I want to be a part of that church. And Jesus came in and said, yeah, but what they don't see, I see. And that is that you left your first love. And how many of you know that He told them, if you don't repent, I'm going to take your lampstand or your church out of Ephesus. And how many of you know today that Ephesus has no church? Not only do they have no church, there is no Ephesus. There is only ruins. There is no city. 
And so he did exactly what he said. In Revelation 2 verse 8, I'll go through just a few of them with you. He says, these are the words of the first and the last who died and who came to life. Here he's going to talk to people that they're persecuted in this church and they are going to die. He actually tells them, be faithful unto death. And I'm going to give you an example of how that happened to some people in Smyrna not a few years after he wrote this thing and the persecution that they suffered. But he told them, I am the one who died. In other words, I've already died. I've already faced it. And I came to life. And guess what? When you die, and you will die, but especially these people, when you die for your faith, listen, I got the power of life. And it's going to be okay. And so he presents himself to them in every way. And I could go through the other churches, but you're able to do that for yourself. So I'm not going to follow through all the rest of them. But we need to see Jesus for all of these characteristics that He is if we're going to keep pursuing faith and following Him with all of our heart. A little background to Smyrna. Smyrna is a major city in Asia Minor. It's literally known as the crown of Asia. It was, uh, according to that, I believe, probably one of the most beautiful of all cities in Asia. Today, it still exists. The city is still there. You can go to Smyrna today. It is named different. The name of it is called Izmir, Turkey. So it's no longer Smyrna, Asia Minor. It's Izmir, Turkey. Ephesus, you might remember, was told that if they didn't recover their first love, then he would remove the lampstand, right? And so, as we said earlier, that happened. He removed the lampstand. There's no church. There's no Ephesus. But Smyrna, on the other hand, you're going to see, they don't even receive a condemnation. Now, they don't receive the praise that Ephesus received, but they don't receive the condemnation. And to me, here's what that says. Jesus taught that to whom much is given, much is what? Much is expected, much is required. And so here's He saying, Ephesus, you were given everything. You had all the good teachers, you had all the good doctrine, you had, you had all the good ministries, you had everything. And guess what? More was expected of you. And you didn't live up to it. And so here in Smyrna, I believe we see a smaller church, probably not as good in doctrine, probably not as healthy in ministries, probably just a, a bunch of Christians that's just trying to make it, just to be honest with you. And yet, he comes with no condemnation. He comes in and he just commends them and encourages them and tells them what they need to do. And so that's an important thing, I think, for us to pay attention to. This was a beautiful place, had a beautiful harbor. If you go home today, look up Izmir, Turkey on your phone and just take a look at the beaches and the harbor. I mean, this, this, you can understand why this was called the crown of Asia. It was, a, it was a beautiful place. It was about 30 miles north of Ephesus. So if you were in a map, you would see that it just a little piece up, uh, this is where this church came into play. It probably was started in Acts chapter 19, verse 10. In Acts chapter 19, verse 10, Paul was preaching in Ephesus, and the Bible says that he continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. In other words, it's very likely that this church started as an offshoot of the ministry that was taking place in Ephesus. 
All the people heard it, and this church sprang up as a result of all this good doctrinal teaching that was happening in Ephesus. It was set on a harbor behind Behind this city was a, a beautiful rolling hills. Uh, it, it, again, when you look up the pictures, you'll be able to see it. What you won't see is that during this time, behind the city was a hill that was filled with temples. And all these temples were dedicated to the Greek gods, Apollo, Aesculapius, uh, Aphrodite, Zeus, and there were other gods that all these massive temples were built to. This was a place of great idol worship much like many of the other places were, but this place a little bit worse, and we'll get to that here in just a minute. Rome gave Smyrna its freedom. Smyrna was in the Roman Empire, but Rome let Smyrna govern themselves. And the primary reason before that, this is important, so don't let me lose you. All this context comes into what you're fixing to read, okay? So stay with me. Rome gave Smyrna its freedom. They governed themselves. There wasn't really a presence of Roman soldiers and Roman army there. They just basically had a governor that took care of the place. And the primary reason behind that was because they were, as far as we know, the first city that ever built a temple and dedicated an altar to the goddess Rome. They literally worshipped Rome. And then they worshiped the god Caesar. And so they had to come once a year. Every citizen of Smyrna came once a year and they had to bow before the altar and burn incense to Caesar and proclaim that Caesar is Lord. Well, for a Christian, that's a no-go. Because Caesar is not Lord. Who's Lord? And is there any other Lord? No. No. And so for a Christian, this is a no-go. And if you did not have this certificate, then this place was built on what they called trade guilds or um, labor unions. And so literally, in a lot of Asia Minor, uh, you remember in Ephesus whenever the, the big riot broke up and they were looking for Paul because he turned the economy upside down and uh, he was claiming that these are not gods. And so these silversmiths got together and they came and they grabbed them all up and they said, listen, he is ruining our business. What they did is they grabbed this trade guild and they grabbed all these other trade guilds and they brought these labor unions together and they said, He is going to destroy our business and what we are doing. And so if you did not fall in line with the worship of these gods, these trade guilds would cast you out and then you could not work outside of the trade guilds. If any of you know much about labor unions, what happens if you don't join them in the strikes? You become a what? A scab. In other words, you you become somebody that is now, you're not one of them, you're not belonging to them, and they're going to do everything they can to cast you out, correct? It can, if for some of you that know how bad it can get, they can do some pretty serious things to try to force people to be a part of these unions. And so you see a lot of that taking place, probably in a lot worse manner than what we could understand. So all Christians in Asia Minor and the Roman Empire suffered persecution. But Smyrna seems to have suffered it much more than any other place because not only did they have persecution as Christians and and not worshiping these gods, but they wouldn't worship the one that was most important to Rome, and that is Rome herself and Caesar himself. 
And so they were under some very heavy persecution. Not just that, they were under um, Jewish persecution. Notice what he said in verse 9 right here. He said, I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And so here he lets us know that these Jews were also coming against these Christians. It wasn't just Rome, it wasn't just Roman gods, but they had that, and then they had the Jews that were inciting Rome against them because they hated them. Uh, Look at Acts chapter 14, verse 19. This is what the Apostle Paul dealt with. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. These Jews from Asia Minor literally followed Paul where he went. And the only reason they didn't follow him after they stoned him is because they thought they killed him. And he lived through it, and he got up, and he walked out of that city. And so we see this happening all throughout the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17, verse 5 through 8. I'll read those very quickly. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, and listen to this, saying that there is what? And so this is what especially Smyrna was dealing with. Because here Paul is not in Smyrna, and he's dealing with it. But Smyrna has a temple and a um, worship service set up where you had to come and do this and get a certificate for it to, to prove that you have actually worshipped and done your due diligence to worship Rome and Caesar. And so we see this all throughout the book of Acts. Um, and I could take you to a few more, but we're not going to go there. But the point being that they were under probably greater persecution than anybody else in anybody in the Bible that you've ever read. Probably nobody suffered persecution the way that these guys suffered. Matter of fact, it's hard for me to even preach on this this morning because of how easy I have it as a Christian. Matter of fact, I know that I would be considered a sissy Christian. That's just the facts of it. I don't even know what persecution is. I don't even understand what these guys are having to deal with, but it's important that we get the lesson from it all the same. I want to read you a story about a man named Polycarp. You may have never heard about Polycarp before, but he was the pastor at the church of Smyrna. Actually, he was probably in the church of Smyrna during this time when this letter was written, but it wasn't until a few years later that he actually was appointed as the pastor or an elder of this church. They called him the father of Christianity. He was literally the Apostle John's student. And he was another one that the Apostle John had raised up to take his place after he left. And so, like Paul had his Timothy, John had his Polycarp. And so these are the historical facts that we have about Polycarp. I'm not going to read all of it to you because it's four pages. I only have bits and pieces highlighted, so don't get scared. But I want you to get the whole story. Here's what's happening. They are having a set of games 
and they find that there are some Christians among them that have not declared Caesar as Lord, as we talked about, right? And they have called that all the atheists, as they call them, because they didn't believe Caesar was God, so they called them an atheist, right? So they declared, away with the atheists! And so they begin to round up Christians and they put them in the midst of the games and they begin to feed them to the lions. This is what it says about some of the things that they did to them. It says, Seeing then when they were so torn by the lashes that even as far as the veins and the arteries and the inward mechanism of their flesh was visible. Keep listening. They endured patiently so that the very bystanders had pity on them and wept. And they themselves reached such a pitch of bravery that none of them uttered a cry or a groan, thus showing to us all that at the hour the martyrs of Christ were being tortured, they were absent from the flesh and present with the Lord, or rather that the Lord was standing by them and conversing with them the whole time. And in like manner also those that were condemned to the wild beasts endured fearful punishments, being made to lie on sharp shells and buffeted with other forms of manifold tortures, that the devil might, if possible, by the persistence of the punishment, bring them to denial of Christ. For he tried many wiles against them." So after this, all the multitude, marveling at the bravery of the God-beloved and God-fearing people of the Christians, raised a cry, Away with all the atheists, let the search be made for Polycarp. He was the pastor. Now remember, this took place about 40 to 50 years after this letter that we just read in Smyrna. So keep this in mind, alright? I'm going to skip a lot of this. When then Polycarp was brought before the proconsul or the governor of this place, they asked him whether he was Polycarp. And on his confessing that he was, he tried to persuade him to denial because he was an old, very respectable man in this place. And though so he tried to persuade him to deny him. He said, listen, Polycarp, have respect to your age. Think about how old you are. And he said other things in accordance with this. And it is their habit to say, Swear by the genius of Caesar. Repent and say, Away with the atheist and you'll be spared. Then Polycarp with solemn countenance looked upon the whole multitude of lawless heathen that were in the stadium and waved his hand to them and groaning and looking up to heaven said, Away with the atheists. But when the magistrate pressed him hard and said, Swear the oath, I will release you. Just revile the Christ. And Polycarp said this, Eighty and six years have I been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? But on his persisting again and saying, Swear by the genius of Caesar, he answered, If you suppose vainly that I will swear by the genius of Caesar, as you say, and feign that you are ignorant who I am, hear you plainly, I am a Christian. But if you would learn the doctrine of Christianity, assign me a day and give me a hearing. I'll skip a little bit more. Whereupon the proconsul said, I have wild beasts here, I will throw you to them, except you repent. But Polycarp said, call for them. For the repentance from better to worse is a change not permitted to us, but it is a noble thing to change from that which is improper to righteousness. 
Then he said to him again, Well, if you despise the wild beast, then I'll cause you to be consumed by fire unless you repent. But Polycarp said, You threaten that fire which burns for only a season, and after a little while is quenched, for you are ignorant of the fire of the future judgment and eternal punishment which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come, do whatever you will. When this was proclaimed by the herald, the whole multitude, both Jews and Gentiles, keep that in mind, who dwelt in Smyrna, cried out with an ungovernable wrath and with a loud shout, This is the teacher of Asia, the father of Christians, the puller down of our gods, who teaches multitudes not to sacrifice nor worship. Saying these things, they shouted aloud and asked the Asiarch Philip, to let a line loose on Polycarp. But he said, It's not lawful for me since I have brought the sports to a close. So in other words, the games had ended. It's not lawful for me to bring the line on him. Then they thought fit to shout out with another accord. Then Polycarp should be burned alive. These things happened with so great speed, quicker than words could tell. The crowds immediately collected timber and sticks from their workshops and baths, and the Jews more especially assisted in this with zeal, as was their custom. Immediately then, the instruments that were prepared for the pile were placed about him. And as they were going likewise to nail him to the stake, Polycarp said, Leave me as I am. For he that has granted me to endure the fire will also grant me to remain in the fire unmoved, even without security, which you seek from nails. So they did not nail him, but they tied him. Then he, placing his hands behind him and being bound to the stake like a noble ram out of a great flock for an offering, a burnt sacrifice made ready and acceptable to God, looking up to heaven, said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels and powers and all of creation, and of the whole race of righteousness who live in your presence. I bless you because you have granted me this day and this hour that I might receive a portion amongst the number of martyrs in the cup of your Lord Jesus Christ unto resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and of body, in this incorruptibility of the Holy Spirit. May I be received among these in your presence this day as a rich and acceptable sacrifice as you did prepare and reveal it beforehand and have accomplished it, you that art faithful and a true God. This is the end of it. <clears throat> Listen to this. When they had offered up the Amen and finished His prayer... The fireman lighted the fire, and a mighty flame flashing forth, we to whom it was given to see saw a marvel. So the person that wrote this saw it. We saw a marvel, yea, and we were preserved that we might relate to the rest what happened. The fire making the appearance of a vault, like the sail of a vessel filled by the wind, made a wall round about the body of the martyr. And it was there in the mist, not like flesh burning, but like a loaf of bread in the oven, or like gold or silver refined in a furnace. For we perceive such a fragrant smell, as if it were the wafted odor of frankincense or some other precious spice. So at length the lawless men, seeing that his body would not be consumed by the fire, they ordered an executioner to go up and stab him with a dagger. 
And I'm not going to read the rest of the story, but tradition says that when they went up and stabbed him with the dagger, that it did kill him, but that his blood put out the fire. Here's the point. I just read you an eyewitness account of the kind of persecution that Christians had to deal with in this city that we're studying in Smyrna. Now with that in mind, let's read this first verse again in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. <clears throat> verse 8, To the angel of the church in Smyrna write this, These are the words of the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. In other words, I'm the one that was here before any of this, and I'll be the one that's still here after all of this is gone. I'm the one who died, and I'm the one who came to life. Keep trusting me, keep following me, and no matter what you have to suffer, I'm the first and I'll be the last. So keep following me. I'm the one who died and I came to life. So keep following me. And then he tells them as he walks among them in verse 9, he says, I know your tribulation. This word comes from a Greek word that literally means to be pressed hard. This is not just trouble. This is a word that's used, if I remember right, don't quote me on this, but I think when I studied it last time, it's a word that's used to describe the crushing process that they use when they take rocks to crush fruit to get the juice out of. That literally they take these, rock, these huge rocks and they use it to crush these, this fruit so that the juice will run out. And here's what Jesus says, I know how hard you are pressed. I know. In other words, I'm not unaware of your suffering. Are y'all hearing me this morning? I know every detail of what you're going through. None of this took him by surprise. I know every detail of your trial and your tribulation. And I know how hard-pressed you are. <clears throat> not only that, I know your poverty. This word, you know, we have levels of poverty. We'll, we'll say things like, well, well, they're on the lower level of poverty. You've heard that before? Well, this word was not speaking of different levels of poverty. This word would probably better be translated destitute. I know that you are destitute. I know that you are completely without even the basic needs of life. I know that you don't even have that. In other words, he understood that because of their faith, they had been kicked out of their businesses. They couldn't work. They couldn't get anything. He knows that they were being pressed hard and tortured in ways that were unspeakable, sometimes even to the point of their death. He understands what they're going through. And then he understands the slander. He said, I know the slander, the abusive language of those who say that they are Jews, but they're actually Satan's seed. I know those who say that they belong to God, but let me tell you, they don't belong to God no matter what they call themselves by name. They belong to the synagogue of Satan. This is the same thing that Jesus told the Jews, um, Gospel of John chapter 8 maybe. He was talking to the Pharisees and they said, We are the seed of Abraham. And Jesus said, if you were the seed of Abraham and you were God's children, you would love me. But because you don't love me, you are the seed of your father. For your father was a murderer from the beginning. 
In other words, Jesus has always said, if you do not accept and trust and love me, you're not a child of God. You're a child of the other one, a child of Satan. And so we see this suffering. It is a church that is persecuted to a degree that most are not. They see suffering to a degree that most have not ever seen or will ever see. And he tells them that at the center of all this persecution and at the center of all this suffering, y'all listen to me closely because this applies to you. At the center of all this suffering is the devil. Notice he says right there, Behold, the devil is about, in verse 10, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. At the center of all of this is the devil. Listen, guys, I need you to understand this. There's an old saying that that goes like this. The greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world that he didn't exist. We think the devil is a joke today. We treat him as a joke. We name foods after him. Devil's food cake. There used to be a... um, There used to be a skit on Saturday Night Live years ago that went on for a long time. It was called The Church Lady. Some of y'all that are older may remember this. Kim, I'm sorry, Kim. (laughs) She fell right into that. I wasn't even trying. It just happened. But some of y'all will remember it was back 80s or 90s or something like that. (laughs) All right, y'all get back over here. But this skit went something like this. It was this picture of a lady that, of a man that was dressed up like a lady, pretending to be this very religious church lady. And she comes out and she's talking about all the things going on in the world today and how we need to watch out for the temptations and don't get caught up in this and this. And then she says, and you know who's responsible for it? And she says, Satan! And it comes out this loud voice. And when she said that, the whole crowd would erupt in laughter. That's a true story. You can go back, go to YouTube, look up the church lady, watch the skits and you'll see what I'm talking about. Because it was a joke that there was actually an enemy out there named Satan that actually was out to get people like you and me. Guys, let me tell you something. He's real. He is as much alive today as he's ever been and probably much smarter today than he has ever been. And so... Jesus wants us to know that at the center of all of our suffering, at the center of all of our tribulation, is Satan. You remember in the book of Job, I'm sure you remember, the Bible said that Satan had been going to and fro the earth, and he was searching for someone to devour. He was looking for people that supposedly had faith in God, because he was supposed to be that person, And then God created us to come down here and have dominion over Him. And so now He goes to and fro, the human race, and He's looking for people that supposedly have faith in God. And God allows Him to test our faith to see that it is true or not. And He came before God, and the Bible says that God actually asked Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? that there's none like him, blameless and upright in his generation, perfect in all of his ways. And you remember what Satan said? Oh yeah, I've been watching him, but I can't get to him 
you've got a hedge of protection around him. If you would lift that hedge of protection and let me try him, he'll curse you to your face just like I did. He ain't no different. He don't love you. And then God said, and a lot of us want to say, God, why? But I'll explain that here in just a few minutes. But God said, okay, the hedge is lifted. You can do this, this, and this, but you can't do this. And so he turns Satan loose and he says, have your way. Test his faith. And how many of you know that Satan didn't quit the first time whenever Job resisted him? Satan didn't quit, did he? Satan come back and said, listen, the only reason he stayed true to you is because you didn't let me touch him. But let me strike his health. Because a man will give anything in exchange for his life. And God said, okay. And he lets him come down and touch Job's health. And so what we see here is that we have a real enemy that is really going to and fro and he has many fallen angels that are with him and they are looking for every way possible to destroy your faith. You remember what Jesus said? The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. This is your enemy and this is what... But not just to steal, kill. He's not satisfied with stealing your family. He's not satisfied with stealing your goods. He's not satisfied with stealing your health. He's only satisfied when He's got what? Your faith. When He's got your faith. That's His goal. And that's very important to remember. Satan is real and alive today. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says this, We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. But we wrestle against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have a real enemy, church. And you better be ready. And the book of Revelation was written so that you understand that there is trouble coming. That you have an enemy that is looking for you. That you have an enemy that as you grow in your faith, that is the very time that he's coming to it. See, we have this false teaching today. We have this false teaching today that says, God's always going to deliver you from your sickness. God's always going to deliver you from your trial. God's always going to take you out of the fire and out of the lion's mouth. And he's always going to deliver you from the sword. And if he don't, it's because you didn't have enough faith. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible actually teaches just the opposite. The Bible teaches us that there are many times that God allows for it to remain. That God allows for the lion's mouth to close around us. That God allows for the sword to pierce us through. There are many times that God allows for us to be martyrs for Him. But this is what is going to happen in the church of Smyrna and he wants us to understand that ahead of time. So he says in Revelation chapter 2 verse 10, Do not fear. Here's the command if you're taking notes. The command. Do not fear what you are, what's that say? About to suffer. Now listen to me. He already knows their tribulation. He already knows that they are hard-pressed on every side. He already knows they're already in poverty. 
He already knows that they're being slandered by the Jews. And now he comes to them and says, Guys, things are not going to get better. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. That's tough, ain't it? That's tough. But this is why He gives us warning. He gives us His Word. He tells us ahead of time, if you are going to walk in faith and you're going to stay true to Me, the devil is going to target some of you. Christians, are y'all hearing Me this morning? The devil is going to target some of you. And he is going to try every way in this world with everything that he has to take your faith away. And there are going to be some people that their faith will be proven ungenuine. See, let me tell you something that persecution does for us. It weeds out false faith. It weeds out false faith. And persecution also strengthens genuine faith. Real faith. And God knows that. It's a purifying process that He does. So He says, do not fear. This is the command that I'm giving you. Don't fear what you are about to suffer. Why? I'm with you. I'm walking among you. I'm right there beside you. You need to understand that. You need to see that. That Jesus is with you. He's not some distant entity that is disconnected from you. He's with you. And no matter what you go through, He's right there walking with you. I am with you. I am the first. (laughs) There was nothing before me. None of this stuff came before me. I am the one that made all of this. And there will be nothing after me. It's all temporary. I'm the end. This thing will not last. And so He says, I am the first. And I am the last. I am the one that died, and I am the one that came to life. So if you die or when you die, just stay faithful because I'll give you eternal life. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. The second command, he says, um, let's keep reading verse 10 first. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. The whole point of this is that we're going to see whether or not you trust God and you, He is your supreme treasure or maybe your goods and the things that He's trying to take from you are your supreme treasure. Maybe your family is your supreme treasure. I don't know. You remember what Jesus said about that? If you don't love me more than mother, father, daughter, son, you're not worthy of me. In other words, if you look at any part of this creation and you see it as more to be desired than the Creator Himself, the One that made it, you're not worthy of Him. And so genuine faith is going to be tested. And when it's tested, it's going to come out as either God is supreme and He is to be worshipped and adored and loved above everything else no matter what, or it's going to come out the other side and you're going to say, He's not worth it. He's not worth it. And there are many in these trials that have came out and they have quit and they said, you know, this ain't worth it. Guys, I'm going to say something right now that I don't want to say. But I believe I need to say it. I don't want to say this because it applies to me. Now, now before I say it, I want to make something very clear. 
Did you come in here this morning expecting to hear everything line up with what you are currently doing? Or did you genuinely come in here knowing I'm a sinner and my ways are not God's ways and I fall short every day? God, teach me. So before I say it, I need you to be in that spirit, okay? But here's what scares me. We won't even suffer an offense from another brother. Y'all picking up what I'm putting down? I was embarrassed reading this. I was embarrassed. We won't even suffer an offense from a brother without us quitting certain things. What in the world would we do in this place right here? And so... Maybe God knows just how weak we are. (laughs) And maybe that's why we were born in America and not Turkey. Because I want you to know today that in Turkey still, in Smyrna, Christians are still, there's probably Christians being killed right now in Smyrna. In Turkey, Christians are still being persecuted. There is still a Christian presence there. The lampstand has not been removed. There are actually multiple churches in Izmir, Izmir, I believe is how you say it, Turkey, in Smyrna. Ephesus? No, it's exactly like Jesus said. The lampstand is gone. Smyrna? The lampstand is still there and they are still being persecuted probably worse than most other places in the world even today. And so, He says to us this in... After this, he says, The devil is about to throw some of you in the prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. We don't know whether this was a ten literal days. As far as we know, it could have been. But we also know that everything I just read you about Polycarp and all those Christians took place for the next 50 years after this was written. After Smyrna was written. And so what the ten days represents, we don't know. But here's what he says. Be faithful unto death. That's the second command. The first command, don't fear. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. The devil is coming. He is going to pick you out if your faith is genuine. And when he does, don't fear. Don't fear. And the way you don't fear is by seeing Jesus and who He is and by recognizing what's actually going on. What's happening? He picked you out. He picked you out. You know what? I actually count it a privilege. I, I, I know it's hard because there's still tears and there's still heartache, but I actually count it a privilege when I have the opportunity to suffer for Christ. I have actually said to God, thank you that you saw fit to choose me. Amen. <laughs> you know what? I'm thankful the devil picked me. I'm thankful for it. As bad as it hurts, because that says something about me. That's the truth of it. That ain't trying to boast in any way. The only boast I have is in Christ and Christ alone. But the Bible tells us all over the place, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And then more goes with that. We'll get there. Be faithful unto death. In other words, this thing is going to cost some of you everything. 
What would happen to your faith today if God took your house away? What would happen to your faith today if God took your children away? What would happen to your faith today if God took all your family and your house and your car and everything else away? What would happen to your faith today if God took all your health away? What would happen? He says here, don't fear what you are about to suffer. Expect it. It's all right. I'm with you. And be faithful, even if it costs you everything. <clears throat> I've got just this little bit left to go and I'm, I'm out of your hair, but listen to this. Jim Elliott was a missionary evangelist to Ecuador. I don't have time to tell you the whole story, so I'm just going to hit the high points. <clears throat> They found this unreached people group of uh, native Indians over there. They had never been reached. They were a savage people. They were known for killing people that came into their camp. They knew it was a risk trying to get to them. They tr took every precaution necessary to get to these, to these people. They even took an airplane and flew over and would drop gift baskets and things to them. They even landed on the beach at one time, made contact with them, and they made a friend with one of these Indians and actually put him in the plane with them and took him for a ride. And they got associated with them. And after doing that, they thought they had a good enough connection with them that they could go to them and proclaim the gospel. What they didn't know is that the young man they put in the plane with them went back to the village and lied and said they're here to do us harm. They're here to... Don't know if his intention was he was trying to keep them for his own friend and he wanted them to be scared. Who knows? But for whatever reason, he went back to the village and he lied to them. The next time, they, it was Jim Elliott and I think four or five others. They landed down on this beach and they got out and as they were approaching the people, the, the, some of the Indians, the warrior Indians came to them and they thrust their spears through them and they killed all of them on the spot. Right then. We have Jim Elliott's journal that he used to write in as he did his studies. You can go look at it today. I think it's on display in Wheaton College up in Illinois, I believe it is. But here's an excerpt out of his journal that he wrote before this happened. Let me find it. He said, Blessed is the man who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Listen to this one more time because you need to get this. Blessed is the man who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Blessed are you if it requires your family of you and you have to give what you can't keep anyway to gain what you can't lose. Blessed are you if He takes your goods or your health away and, and you have to give what you can't keep anyway to gain what you can't lose. And this is the mindset of the person that does not fear when they face the trial and they can be faithful even unto death. Even knowing that death could await me. They can be faithful because they have this mindset of the promise of God. This leads us into the final, the closing, the promise. Look at verse... Um, <clears throat> well, the last part of verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Stay faithful. 
Trust Him. Keep following Him. Even unto your death, and I will give you the crown of life. Verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt in the second death. In closing, Jesus never promised you a life of no suffering. You need to get that this morning. Jesus never promised us a life of no suffering. Exactly the opposite is what's promised. He promised that in this world, there will be tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. He said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you, right? He said, yea, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Paul said, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Job said, after his trial was completely over, Job said that the difference in the way he saw God before his suffering and the way that he sees God now after his suffering is the difference in hearing about somebody and actually seeing somebody. At the end of it, Job said this, I heard of you by the hearing of my ears, but now my eyes see you. This was a blameless and upright man that walked with God. And after suffering, he said, I understand and know you to a degree today that I never could have imagined I could have ever known you, even when I was walking blameless and upright. Guys, listen to me. We don't cling to God in the highs, do we? When do you cling to God? In the lows. Unfortunately, because our hearts are the way that they are, God has to use persecution and suffering to draw us to Him. And you will not cling to God when everything's good. I'm sorry. <laughs> I wished it worked that way. I wish we were that kind of people. You don't. When everything's good and everything's going good, you're on your own. You got this. Man, I'm good. But you let something happen that you realize, I can't control this. I can't do anything about this. What do you do? You turn to God. You cling to God. And so, do not fear what you are about to suffer. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. And you will be tested for a certain number of days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And even if you die, you will not be hurt by the second death. Everybody will die the first death. But the second death is an eternal death in a lake of fire. And if you are faithful to Christ unto death, it won't touch you. That's a promise.